Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Scientology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and like you, before I ran and before I walked, I had to take my first cautious exploratory steps into the world of upright ambulation. First steps, baby steps, are special. They are different from those that follow, and there's a process that leads to those steps and beyond. This episode, Dr. Rutger Lukfeld joins us again to talk about the baby steps and the process of getting into cybercrime and becoming a money mule and the process of researching itself into the relatively unknown space of cyber. We will again be joined this episode by the ever-patient Vanessa Henry, who will candidly answer another of my reckless questions about the practice of cyber lawyering, so make sure you stay around for that. First, though, let's jump right into the conversation with Dr. Lukfeld, as I was just asking him, where does research start? when you have a topic that you're curious about? Yeah, that's that's a brilliant question uh, for me or in general. Let me try and answer it from my perspective because I do a lot of research for governments, for companies, because I need to get in the money. I need to get in the grants. I need to you know get the papers out because even though everybody's saying it's not how our world works, it is, right? Because everybody's going to look at the number of papers, citations, and stuff like that. So you need to do that. Not all of these studies that I do with my team, I find personally interesting. Some of them I think, okay, there is a need for it, so let's do it. And we get money in, and we might actually fund something cool with that. So that's how I work. I try to do all of the stuff that we need to do in order to save money, and then either fund a couple of PhDs or get some time for myself. So in my mind, it works, okay, for example, I'm now been involved in what I call my pet project for three years, which is interviewing hackers. Uh, nobody's paying me to do it, but I see that it's really needed because I see when I look at papers, for example, about pathways into cybercrime, I see a couple of papers that actually, you know, uh, the researchers try to talk to hackers. It's very difficult, blah, blah, blah. Others just interview experts that have knowledge about hackers and then publish papers on it. And I think both of them are good because... You know, if we don't do it, we don't know anything. But what you really want to do is talk to the hackers yourself. So that's what I just start doing. And I started that a couple of years ago. And it's going slow. And it takes a lot of time. It's always in the evenings or in the weekends. But it's also really, really, really cool. Because if you sit down with somebody for a couple of hours, maybe three, four, five hours, you know, you really have interesting conversations about everything that they experienced. And I think that's really necessary. And I think that's the start of getting more ideas about, okay, what kind of research should we set up? How should we do this? Can I do it by myself? Do I need more people? So this is how I work. So on the one hand, I I try to be a good academic by publishing, by getting in grants and stuff like that. On the other hand, I do stuff that interests me. Takes a lot of time. Nobody really cares on the short term if I do it or not. Nobody knows I'm doing it until I publish about it. So my boss doesn't know it. Some of the colleagues know, but it's just something that I do on myself. And then I get more ideas and I start talking it with postdocs or with others. Uh, and then we come up with ideas to actually, for example, I'm now financing a one PhD uh, student for four years to do research into money mules because already in my own PhD, I found out, hey, these money mules are a very interesting group when it comes to criminal networks because they are needed to actually get money from uh, victims to criminals without being seen by the police or the banks because they actually withdraw the money. But nobody really cared about money mules a while ago. I remember in 2015 or 16, I written my first article and I tried to find literature about money mules. 
and it was basically non-existing except for the gray literature. So I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. And one of the reviewers also commented, hey, you should get a more thorough understanding of the literature about money mules. I said, yeah, well, there isn't anything. But a couple of years later, I figured out the problem is still the same. Maybe one or two studies now have been done into money mules, but basically we don't know anything. So I try to get money, scrape everything aside when when I did the project for the government or whatever. And I said, okay, now I've got enough money for a PhD. You're going to focus on these money mule issues for four years. In the meantime, we're setting up multiple studies around that to make it bigger and make it into a program for multi-years because I honestly think that if you really want to tackle some of these issues that we almost don't know anything about, such as money muling, but also pathways into cybercrime, you really have to have programs that are for four or five or even more years, because otherwise you're just touching only the first kind of phase of what you really want to touch. You want to dive deeper, right? And that's only possible if you have funding or if you have people that are funded for multiple years. So that's how I did it with the money mules. That's how, how I'm doing it currently with my own pathways into cybercrime interviews. And that's also how I'm doing it currently with setting up all sorts of experimental designs on online platforms. Because I know there is something that's really interesting in there. Nobody else is doing it, or at least not enough people. So we just try to get a bit of funding from the police or from municipalities or from our own budget and try to do it, see if it works or not. And if it works, you can actually either use it in new grant applications or whatever to get more money for the long term. Because unfortunately, it all comes down to money because money gives you freedom to do what you want. So this is how it works for me. Just try to do stuff that you really find interesting, do it on the side, get ideas and try to get money in for the longer term. What you've kind of highlighted there is that the system that is in place for funding and for promoting research is not really designed in such a way that you can do what it is that that you want to do. Is there a conflict between how you're funded and how you're expected to work within the international institutions that are scientific research and what it is you think needs to be researched? Yeah, well, I think, of course, there are many, many opportunities to actually get long-term funding to research what you want to do. You got the ERC starting grant, the ERC consolidator grant here for the European scholars. In the Netherlands, you have, have the same kind of schemes for uh, Dutch people. I actually got a Veni talent scheme that gives me four years of research. However, I think in the Netherlands, we have a 9% or 8% success rate when it comes to applying for the Veni Talent Scheme. And I know that 50% of my colleagues never apply because I think we're never going to get it. So only 50% applies, something like that, and only 8 or 9% of them get it. So I think that's the part where it becomes unfair because, of course, we have some schemes in place that give some scholars the opportunity to actually do their curiosity-driven, scientific, very, very good scientific research over a longer period of time. But it's really only a small percentage of of all of the the scholars out there. And the rest of us teaching a lot, trying to get some publications on the side while teaching. And everybody knows if you don't have time, it's going to be a publication, but it's not going to be a very good publication. It's not going to be something that's going to be breakthrough because you just need time to do that. So on the one hand, we do have a system in place that enables us in theory to actually do it the right way. But on the other hand, it's so limited in the number of people that can actually do it that I do think that there should be way more possibilities to actually do your curiosity-driven research because I think that's 
very, very important if you want to get new knowledge that nobody really was thinking of. Because otherwise, what people are doing is, hey, I'm going to read this article, going to look at you know, how they collect the data using students, what were the limitations. Oh, I'm just going to do a quick and easy follow-up study. And here's my next publication. Well, it's not going to really help move our field forward. And that's, of course, what we want to do, especially when it comes to cybercrime research, because it's still so new and there are st still so many fundamental questions that we just cannot answer that we, especially in our field, we need to have very, very deep understanding of you know, all of the elements that are important when it comes to pathways into cybercrime, motivations, structures of networks, how it's changing and stuff like that. And yeah, we, we, we don't have the basic understanding of all of them yet. It, it's really needed when it comes to cybercrime. That's what I know for sure. You mentioned uh, a few different types of methods and things that you've been working on. So I, I, I wanted to get your insight on a particular tension, that at least I see from my perspective. It seems to me that the research community is broken up into different groups of craft. There are people who consider themselves qualitative craftspeople. There are people who consider themselves quantitative craftspeople. There are different perspectives on how the work of research is done and different types of methods that they prefer, that they have by need of the complexities of working with those methods, have specialized in. And I see a tension between that and the idea of a process of research that moves from total ignorance and open-ended questions and very open methods of gathering data and deriving insights, all of the way through to very concrete questions and very clear answers about specific things. How do you manage the needs of doing a, a research process that isn't just one type of research so that you can move to concrete answers and this world where everybody has a lane and, and perhaps even a, a particular methodological fetish that they stick to. Yeah, that's a really good, a good observation. I myself, I consider myself to be a qualitative researcher, although if you look at my papers, I think maybe 40% is quantitative, 60% is qualitative, or maybe even 50-50, I don't know. Somebody <laughs> with a quantitative background, please have a look at it and, and let me know. But the kind of stuff that I think is important is to, especially again in a field like cybercrime and cybercriminology, where we know so little about very important mechanisms, is to first do very thorough qualitative research and really try to understand what are these mechanisms? Are they different than before? And if they are different, what are they? Uh, for example, when it comes to my interviews with hackers, one of the things that I learned is that they actually used, for example, Google and YouTube to learn. So I understand that if you want to learn something when you're 12, you know, you might Google it. But all of them, all of the, all of the hackers I talked to said, whether they learn stuff, I just looked online on Google and YouTube, it's everywhere. So for me, I never seen that before, right? In any publication about pathways or whatever, Google and YouTube, I, I haven't seen it. And it's so simple. It's so basic. But yeah, it kind of makes sense. But if I hadn't interviewed all of these self-identified criminal hackers, then I would never have thought of integrating Google and YouTube into more robust experimental designs that I now want to do. And I think this is a perfect example of why you should do qualitative research first to actually look at, okay, what are exactly the elements that later on we want to test in, in different settings, in different methods, in different whatever, because in the end, we have knowledge that is according to the standard academic practices. You know, it, it, it's tested, it's rigorous, blah, blah, blah. So now it's true. And I think you should always start qualitative and then do it 
quantitatively. Uh, what I see in practice is that it's either indeed only qualitative and it stays qualitative. You just go on to the next thing that you find interesting, which it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you should also try, of course, to, if you have results, to make sure that somebody follows up on it. And I think that's also one of the tasks of a researcher that you don't only just show new things. Hey, here's another new thing I discovered. No, also try to make sure that in collaboration with others, do something with it. And that's something that I've always done. And, and I've always worked with people that have skills that are other than mine, better than mine. You can see that in my, in my publications, I work with uh, Steve van der Weijer. I, I, I work with Azure uh, Moneva. You know, these are guys that know much more about all sort of very difficult quantitative stuff. But they would not be able to do the stuff they've done if they would not have had the qualitative insight. So I think that's really important because on the other hand, you also see a lot of quantitative scholars doing very, very good stuff if you look at it from a methodological point of view. But if you look at what they have done, you think, okay, but this is not interesting at all. Why are you looking at this, right? It's a, it's all wrong. So I think we should combine the two. And, and of course, this is not new. Everybody knows it. Everybody's saying something about mixed methods. But what you see in practice is either not mixed methods, or if you work with quantitative people, they say, well, we're first going to do some rigorous quantitative studies, and then we're going to do some follow-up interviews to see why there are some weird things that we can't explain. Well, I think it should either be the other way around, or at least also start with a qualitative stuff. If it's on a field, of course, where all knowledge is limited. For example, if you do research into people breaking and entering homes, sure, do quantitative research because you know we have decades of knowledge about it. But when it comes to cyber, we don't have it. So at least first try to identify elements and then do, the, do your rigorous designs. Because if you don't do it, you know you have another publication, but we don't have knowledge that actually going to help us, both from a scientific point of view and a societal point of view. I think the the distinction for cyber is an important one because in the in the real space we have a couple of thousand years of history and our understanding of what words mean in a physical space is quite grounded. Uh, we have a long history with what physics means and what people are able to do and what's physically possible. Cyber is such a different space, and innovation is sown into it. So assuming that somebody has done something in a particular way, even for example, I searched it on Google. You assume that they went to the page Google and typed it in. They could have used a Python script. You, you can't just uh, assume what something means when somebody says it. It's such a different kind of space. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and I think therefore it's, it's key to actually you know, have these in-depth interviews with, in, in this case with criminal hackers, but you know, you can think of all sorts of other examples, but also just have them show you what they've done and how it worked, right? Because even if somebody might tell you something, how they did it, it might even be different if they show it. Yeah. You know, I, I remember distinctly one of the, the guys that I interviewed, I think this was, let's say, an 18-year-old kid, still living with his parents, by the way. His father, at the, at the beginning of the interview, was, was there. He didn't even care. He said, oh, just go shopping, you guys. Don't, don't mention any, anything illegal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I talked with him for, I think, three or four hours, something like that. And in the end of the interview, because he was telling me something about what he did with databases, and he collected all sorts of user credentials, but also credit card credentials. And when he was talking about this, I was thinking, okay, it's... This guy has a couple of hundred passwords and stuff like that. But after the interview, actually showed me what he had. And it was millions, right? And then, of course, he got excited. And he showed me, oh, you can, I can do this. I can do that. And this is how this works. And this, this actually meant that 
after the interview, he gave me much more important details about this this kind of stuff than when he was telling it. And that might have been because he thought I knew or I just interpreted in a different way. But all in all, because we had this interaction and he began to trust me and he saw I, I was me, I'm just being me, right, in this interview. Yeah. I'm trying to be somebody else. I say, you can you can find everything that I do online. I did this kind of stuff in, when I was younger. And and then in the end, you see that they show you much more. But that's really important context if you want to understand their world. And, and I think that's, that's key here. And of course, that takes time. And time is not always on our side in the academic world. At least in my life, time is not always on my side. <laughs> So that's why I really try to do these pet projects, but also then try to get funding But because funding is going to buy you time and that's going to make sure that you can do stuff in the right way. Let's talk about this process of trying to understand pathways into crime from thinking about the baby steps of the criminal, but also your baby steps as a researcher. Yeah. Well, the thing is that I, I haven't even officially analyzed the interviews. And, and that's also a difficult part because I now interviewed, I, I think, 26 I want to interview 26 more because it's just so, uh, still every interview brings something new to the table. And of course, the main lines are there, but it's so interesting. Uh, so what I've done, uh, I was asked to give a presentation, uh, a keynote uh, a while ago and said, I'm going to do this about pathways into cybercrime because that needs me to actually look at the data and start analyzing it. Uh, so I haven't used any kind of Atlas TI tool or whatever. What I just did is I had somebody uh, who actually uh, written down everything that was recorded because I'm allowed to record it. It's an encrypted recorder, blah, blah, blah. And then I just read it all and I made one summary of one page per person. And I always already do that while interviewing, by the way. So you get kind of a clear idea of, okay, starting age and stuff like that. What I noticed during the interviews, and, and especially when I had all of these 26 uh, summaries on my desk, is that they all started at the very young age, which kind of makes sense. You know, you get a computer in your house when you're like five or six or seven and you start to become interested in it. That's nothing new. They start gaming, nothing new. Everybody's doing that. But then that's a very important step. They either get hacked, they get fished, or they get DDoSed. They become a victim. That's always, in each and every one of these cases, the starting point of, hey, what's going on? I'm going to Google it. How can I return the DDoS attack? Or how can I stop this guy or this person from using my account? So the victimization here is really the starting point of getting interested in, hey, but what's going on? There's an entire world of things that I can do to hit back. And of course, and this is where it gets tricky because we also need knowledge from ethical hackers or from people that are actually not into ethical hacking or criminal hacking, but did experience the same thing, but this is a starting point for them, a tipping point from going, okay, I'm just somebody gaming into, hey, I also want to do a DDoS attack, or I also want to learn to hack or do something like that. And this is something that they all reported to me. And I think that's one of the key things that I learned. Okay, so you become a victim, you're going to look for ways to solve it. And now you enter this online subculture where, you know, just go on Google, just go on YouTube, you find tutorials, you find all sorts of stuff if you want to hack back, if you want to do a DDoS attack where you can get a, a booter service or whatever. And for them, they enter a world where it's completely normal to do it. There are no signs at all that might be wrong. You know, don't throw this brick through the window. You should not do it. No, there's no signs at all. 
And for those that become interested in in it, and of course they quickly learn that they are good in it. Hey, I could just I don't even need to code myself. I could just you know do this and do that and then attack back. And then they learn, oh, there are forums, and then they get sucked into the subculture. And of course, this is what starts to become interesting because some of them are good and actually then show off on the forum, show what they can do and stuff like that. And then they get recruited into crypto networks or by individuals to do some stuff for them. And for them, this is where it became bad because now they become involved in, well, let's say proper cyber crimes. You know, this all took them from, let's say, the age of five to 10 years old to, you know, being victimized and just still being not a cyber criminal, but interested in the stuff. And then age 12 to 15, kind of developing themselves into, hey, I can do this and then getting recruited. And what I learned by doing the first rough analysis of the lives of these people is, okay, these baby steps, they are interesting because if we can make sure that once somebody enters Google and YouTube, which is basically the pathway into all sorts of cybercrime tutorials, we might even be able to manage that they go into a different direction. And maybe there is also a next step once they go to the first publicly available open access forum, we might be able to still warn them or whatever. Because once they have acquired all of the skills and they've showed what they've done and they get recruited, yeah, then it's up to the police. And then you have to have another type of intervention. But what about interventions in a very early stage? And this is actually something that I never thought of before because me as a criminologist, and I did my PhD into cyber criminal networks. I was always thinking about, okay, how can we make sure that we identify the facilitator and get them out of the network? How can we make sure that we identify bottlenecks in the crime script so we make it harder for the criminals to actually commit the crimes? Well, if you really think about it, if we can save a lot of youngsters from actually entering that world, it might even have a bigger effect than trying to stop criminals that want to be criminals anyway, because they've doing it for all of their lives. So this is also something that I never, ever thought of before I was interviewing those self-identified hackers and before I did the analysis. And the same is true for what I told you before about money mules, because I started doing my PhD into cyber criminal networks, thinking, ah, this is cool, you know, looking at, you know, organized cybercrime, blah, blah, blah. And along the way, I figured out, okay, we can do all sorts of things to stop them. It's going to be very difficult. However, when it comes to phishing and now also all sorts of other low-tech cybercrimes, the bottleneck, more often than not, is the money mule because they need those persons to actually withdraw the money and stuff like that. Again, something that I learned by doing it. And then I figured out, hey, this is something we should learn way more about because if we can actually stop these money mules from becoming a money mule, we might even frustrate the criminals, but we also might save some of these persons from the first steps, again, the first baby steps into a serious criminal career. And this is something that I now realize. Also with the money mules, it's also about the first baby steps in, into crime. So I think my interest has shifted from in the beginning of my career to you know the serious organized forms of cybercrime. I'm still interested in that. But now I also think that, you know, especially the first baby steps, they should deserve way more attention because we don't know anything about it from a scientific point of view. So we don't know what the elements are, what the processes are. Are there interventions possible to actually inform them? Does it work? Maybe it doesn't work at all, but we don't know anything about it. And I think we should definitely do more there. But it's also from a societal point of view, very interesting, of course, because I, I'm, I'm old now, but when I was that age, 
uh, I was definitely experimenting with what can I do online? How can I hack this? How can I do that? And I never actually had the internet as it is today. I could never use it like that because I'm from 82. So I was using the bulletin board systems and it's very limited. Uh, we didn't even pay with credit cards in the Netherlands back then. So, you know, hacking a, hacking a credit cards or, or, or buying credit cards, you know, it was no use. But if I would grow up now, might have been completely different. And I'm not a criminal, right? But I could have been sucked into this subculture. So I think this is really, really something that we should pay way more attention to. You mentioned money mules there. You're not taking baby steps on on the subject of money mules anymore. You've been doing it for quite a while. Well, first of all, I do think we're still in, in the baby steps phase, because even though I've been doing this for almost a decade now it has always been side projects because i never got funding to do research into money mules which is strange because they're a big problem and we now see a lot of money coming our way because we see a lot of government bodies that say oh we need to do something with it so i'm thinking we're going to set up a number of projects in the future but the first things we did were based on police files because i had access to police files there are lots of interrogations in, of money mules in there. And I've written a chapter with uh, Professor Claymans, uh, who is a, a professor of organized crime, I don't know, five or six years ago, in which we analyzed these interviews with money mules. And what struck me then, and this was really the first empirical paper about money mules, uh, what struck me then is that all of them had debt. So all of them, they just needed money. Some of them, they had debt because of school, some of them because insurance things, blah, blah, blah. They all had debts. Then the other thing was they were not asked to become a money mule once or twice, but a gazillion times on the streets while at school, in the club, uh, back then via Ping, Blackberry Ping, and later on via WhatsApp or via Instagram. I remember distinctly one of the examples. <laughs> I think this is a brilliant one. Uh, money mule coming to the police station and then telling the, the officer, why are you asking these questions? I mean, everybody's doing this, right? I mean, what's what's going on? Everybody's making money doing this. Here, I just got a text five minutes ago about, hey, do you want to make quick money? Blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, okay, so these money mules that are now at the police station and they were interrogated, they were all in a subculture where it was completely normal to be to be asked to to do this. And a number of them even said, yeah, well, everybody's making money, so why shouldn't I? And I remember they were in debt. There are no real long-term things that they need to worry about because the banks say, oh, you can't get a mortgage. Well, if you're 16 or 20, you know, you, you don't worry about the mortgage yet. So there are no signs, again, that they should not do it. They see in their surroundings that, hey, everybody's doing it. Uh, they got nice cars. They got nice clothes. So it seems to be working. Of course, that's not true. It's only for a very small percentage that it might work. Uh, but that's something that we learned from those interrogations. And then the next steps after that were, and which we're doing now, is where we just finished a survey amongst the general population of, of youngsters, so age 25 and below, just to get a picture of, okay, have you ever been asked to become a money mule? Do you know any friends of you that have been asked to become a money mule? What did you do? What did they do? Do you know the consequences and stuff like that? So real basic knowledge about what's going on. Do you know something about consequences, whether they're bad for you or not? And stuff like that. Really basic stuff that nobody did before. So we did that. But something we learned along the way, not only because of the interrogations, but also because of this uh, survey we did, is that they are getting recruited 
offline. So just like traditional crime, you know, on the streets, again, at school, stuff like that, but also online. And I remember we were doing a pilot study. Again, I financed it first because we did a small pilot study for one of the municipalities in the Netherlands. They, they wanted to do something with money. We also said, yeah, let's do it. Give me some money and I will make sure that, you know, whatever it costs more, we're going to pay for it ourselves. Then we said it should be about money mules because that's a big local problem. They said, yeah, okay, cool. We're going to do that. So we set up an explorative part, interviewing all sorts of stakeholders. What do you know about them? Blah, blah, blah. And then we ended up with a number of possible interventions that they could do. And we're go- we were going to test those interventions. We had a session with all sorts of people working with youth, people from the police. And we were listing the possible interventions. And a couple of them were online. They had to do with Instagram or with other places where they got recruited. And they just got scared because they said, we don't know anything from the online world. So let's not do that. So this is, of course, for me, there was a sign we have to do something on with the online aspect because you know, you're scared, you're staying away from it. Well, in the recruitment process, we learned it was also a very important aspect. So I ended up making sure that we did an, uh, an experiment with them online. We learned a lot from that. And now we actually did it bigger and better. Uh, and we're going to publish about this in the next few days or weeks in the Journal of Experimental Criminology. I think a rather high impact journal. It's all about rigorous methods. But what we did, based on the interviews we did before, we actually found out that if money mills were recruited online, it happened on Instagram. What we did on Instagram is looked at all of the Dutch recruiters on Instagram and looked at their advertisements. Of course, you can do that on Instagram. You either have posts or you have ads. And we did a systematic analysis of that. Just qualitative, very easy. Uh, we published that in DFN Behavior this year. So Luke Beckers and myself did, an, uh, did a qualitative analysis to identify the mechanisms that were at play in those ads to see, okay, what, what are the elements that they use to actually uh, make sure that somebody tries to connect to them? And of course, we already learned something from the interviews with Money Mules or the police files, and we actually then combined that in this experiment. So we looked at the elements that were new. We said, okay, uh, a number of elements are at play. We're going to design different ads and place them on Instagram. And the nice thing of Instagram is that you can actually pinpoint, I just want to have people at the age 25 and below. I want to have this in these regions. Because of this, we were able to set up a couple of studies where we could really pinpoint what kind of uh, respondents we wanted. And we showed them the ad. Of course, they were not aware that it was an ad and they thought it was just something that popped up on their timeline or while scrolling down Instagram. But this gave us the possibility to actually see which of the elements that were used in the advertisement worked best to attract the group at risk. And we were able to, you have to look it up in the paper, but thousands of youngsters, I think 50,000 or something like that, actually saw the ad. And depending on the type of campaign we did, because we did multiple campaigns, one of them, we only showed the ad once. The other one, we showed the ad as many times as possible to see also if that was a mechanism, compared it with the subculture where you get asked a lot. And we saw that in the latter, I think there was a click-through rate of about 3%. And in the first, it was something like 1%. So on the one hand, you see that we did qualitative research first to gain knowledge about possible relevant elements. And on Instagram, an online environment, we actually set up a rigorous design, experimental design, and we tested it to see if one actually worked best. We not only learned something about involvement mechanisms by doing that, but we also learned something about, okay, you really have to use this element if you want to, for example, build an intervention to make sure that those potential money mules know that they're getting 
well, basically victimize themselves because, of course, they are being abused by the criminals. So I think this is threefold. On the one hand, we identified elements. On the other hand, we tested them. So scientifically, that's really nice. But also we found out one of these elements that really should be used now in further research or in further interventions to try and make sure that a large proportion of this population at risk doesn't become a money mule. So I think this is a very cool example of a new type of research, which we did because of qualitative hobby projects, basically, again. Well, I look forward to reading a paper that's coming out, and I'll, I'll link the, the other one that's already come out in the show notes. But thank you very much for your time, and um, yeah, keep keep doing what you're doing, man. Great, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me, and um, let's hope the paper's out this weekend. If you're involved in cyber... You're often expected to answer questions on everything from how many watts an RTX 4090 draws to the copyright implications of digital twins. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert. We happen to have cornered a cyber lawyer. Vanessa Henry is a co-founder at Henry & Wolf, an adjunct professor, an advisor on numerous boards, and a sought-after speaker. But more importantly, she is patient and she's willing to answer my daft questions, so let's take advantage of that and ask her this. Every great job also has a crappy bit. What's the most annoying thing that you have to do? Let's start with what I like the most. I like the most the opportunity to to meet all of these entrepreneurs because I work with a lot of small and medium firms and they come with these sometimes crazy but always good to hear uh, projects. And then you, you, you even brainstorm together and you see all the opportunities. But there's a lot of stress that goes into being able to deliver your work First, it's hard to walk away from a hourly billing rate. There's always a dashboard that you see somewhere with the number of hours you did today, the number of the non-billable hours you did, how much you brought into revenues, and you're trying to focus on justice, and all you can see is that revenue dashboard to your right, and if you don't do it, then you're a poor lawyer. So that that is obviously very difficult to manage and reconcile the financial aspect of it, managing the practice with the actual values behind it. There's a lot of competition too. People are very, very competitive. When I was in law school, people would take the law books and they would actually rip off some page out of it so you wouldn't find the answer in the exam. Or they would actually put the law books into the ceilings, into the library, so that other people would not find them and have the same argument than them. That's how competitive law school is. And, you know, the industry obviously in a way encourages it when it says you need to race with 500 people to get a job and do seven interviews in a row so we can judge if you're the best of the best so that you can come here and make more and more money. Walking away from this and saying I'm going to open my practice or I want to do consumer protection law or I want to work in a small firm or I want to work in else, it's kind of a paradigm shift for a person and to realize that you've built this cage entirely on your own and that actually HR has never called you and told you to work for 16 hours and you made it up entirely because of other people around you and and be that voice of change that you know you should have a work-life balance and a good lawyer is a lawyer that's happy it's a lawyer that can focus on work is a lawyer that has a right attitude so a mental health of lawyers is a thing discrimination of lawyers is a thing women and men equity of lawyers is a thing too the industry has its own problem that it needs to solve. And there are many studies that came out in the last few years about the mental health of lawyers in general. It's a job that can be very solo, very demanding, very competitive, and maybe you'll feel like you're never good enough. Obviously, we, we want and you know the answer to this when people say, oh, I'm not feeling good. It's, well, you're a lawyer, so why are you being a victim? 
stop stop talking about your mental health we don't care so for many years that was the answer to any lawyer that would have any concern about this so i think this is the part of the job that's not easy and this is not something you can talk about so easily because people feel that it will reflect poorly on their client they feel that it will reflect poorly on them and their ability to represent people after and the truth is that if you take time off and you declare this to the bar and your insurance, then they may see you as a fragile person after as well. So it's a very fierce industry with, I would say, a minimal amount of technological change and a maximum amount of relying on individual as products. So this is something I think that people are starting to realize and are starting to advocate for this. But a fair warning is you should be ready to understand that before you get into law. It may not be that easy and you may not have the support network that you may think you may get. Thank you, Vanessa, for your honest and helpful answers. And thanks as well to Dr. Luckfeld for the interesting insights. You can find links to some of the works mentioned in the show notes. And if you want to hear more from him, you can scroll back to episode five to hear him discuss organized crime online. Thanks for listening and I hope you're well. And until the next episode... This has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimeology.com, and you can talk to me at cybercrimeology on Twitter.